Hello, I'm Lynn Hilton Wilson, part of the Scripture Central team with Come Follow Me, and I am thrilled to be able to talk about the last few chapters in the book of Revelation. This is our day and age. This is a fabulous period of time where we finish up the horrific calamities and the natural disasters and the challenges of the last days prior to the Savior's return. And then he comes and we have the millennium and then another battle and the, finally the celestialized earth. And all of this is described with great symbols. It's apocalyptic literature. And so I would encourage you as you study to look at section 77, look at the messages of the prophets, look at um, the plan of salvation and the temple initiated can get more out of this and get on your knees and ask the Lord to help you understand it. A lot of the symbols come out of John's era. And so you have to sort of step back in history too, but it's a fabulous book. And we are so fortunate to have these keys to unlock it because I think um, we will be held responsible for not following some of the councils. Chapter 16, verses 1 to 22, all refer to a call to action from a heavenly temple. God's wrath is mentioned 25 times in the, in the New Testament, and a whole bunch of them are right here. Now, we have these, these vials that are filled with the plagues. And remember, in the Old Testament, the temple included these golden bowls, these little vials. It's almost a sacred offering that is being described here. But the first one in chapter 16, verse 2, is a grievous sore. And then the sea is turned to blood, verse 3. And then the rivers are turned to blood in verse 4. And the scourging heat from verse 8 to 9. And the darkness and the pain, you know, it's described like scorpions. It's horrific. And it's even the time period of a scorpion's life cycle. It's really quite interesting. That's verse 10. And then they describe the droughts and the water driving up in, in verse 12. And then from verse 17 to 21, there's the lightnings and the earthquake and the hail and the, the islands and the mountains are moving. It's, it's just the worst disasters you can imagine. And at the end of those horrific disasters, chapter 16, verse 16, describes the battle of Armageddon. Now, traditionally, it's described that this is happening in the area up in central Galilee, it's in Megiddo, just due east of the Mediterranean. And this has been one of the most fertile valleys of the land of Israel throughout the history of time. And many a war were fought there. We read about Ahab being there. We read about other um, people in that area. But it's absolutely lush and green, so it makes sense that wars would be fought there. Verse 19 says that the great city was divided into three parts. Now, I mentioned earlier, it's a portion. We, it's not exactly 33%. You know, it, it, their numbers are a little different than the way we use them. But the cities of the nations fell. And then chapter 17 introduces another one of these horrific satanic figures, the great whore. And we've already had the woman who's expecting, who represents the church, who is like the sun and the moon. This is the antithesis of that. She represents Babylon. She represents the worldliness. And some of the words that are used to describe her, dominion, power, apostasy, persecution, wealth, materialism, abominations, you know. And this beast is filled with sin. She causes fear. She's an anti-God, powerful. She's proud, even referred to as perdition. But all of these horrific things are overcome by the Lamb. So no matter how horrific the satanic forces are, God will prevail. It's interesting sometimes to look at the parallels between 
John's revelation and others who saw similar visions. And I want to just go for a minute and go back to Nephi's vision of the tree of life. In 1 Nephi chapter 14, verse 10, it reads, Whosoever belongeth not to the church of the Lamb of God belongeth to the great church, which is the mother of abominations. That's the whore that we just read about. And she is the whore of all the earth, and she sat upon many waters, and she had dominion over all the earth among all nations and kindreds and tongues and people. We're not talking just about a small community, a gang of some sort somewhere, or an ideology. We are talking about something that is pervasive. This is satanic that is completely overrunning the earth at this time. And as this happens, the kingdoms of the earth began to fall. Chapter 18, verse 2 says, Babylon the Great is fallen. Now, Babylon actually did fall. You know, we've got some beautiful remnants of the old gorgeous walls that are now in Berlin, of all places. But you can go and visit the ruins that are left of the old city of Babylon. But I think this is more figurative for all the wealthy, um, noble, and great cities. And it represents a lot more than just the ancient cities. It, It represents our day and age as well. But as Babylon is falling, we have a commandment from God. And in verse 4, it reads, Come out of her, my people, that ye may not be partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not her plagues. This is the hope of those that follow the prophet, that we can hear the voice of the Lord, that we will not succumb to the tragedies of these last days pornography and gambling and, and, and worshiping false idols. We worship sports. We worship cars. We worship money. We worship our own time rather than God. Um, we worship leisure. We worship travel. I mean, there's just so many things that we put our time and energy on rather than building the kingdom of God. This is a powerful message, and it's repeated in the restoration in section 133. I don't know if you remember that one, but verse 5 and 7 and 14 all talk about this, that we right now are living on the earth in a very, very wicked time, but the Lord is giving us messages. Come out of her. Do not partake of her sins. We have been warned of these sins for years and years and years. Babylon is just, of course, a symbol of worldliness, but he goes on now, the last portion of chapter 18, verses 8 to 19, and laments. It's as bad as Jeremiah's lamentation. He laments the kings of the earth lament, and then the merchants, and then the maritime. You know, everybody is mourning that the worldliness is being destroyed. I'll just read a couple of them. Verse 9 of chapter 18. The kings of the earth who have committed fornication and lived deliciously with her shall bewail her and lament for her when they shall see the smoke of her burning. In the ancient world, a city is always a her. So um, Zion is a her, Jerusalem's a her, Babylon is a her. But what they're talking about is the fall of the wickedness. So the her represents the fall of all those people. And I love some of these words. The fornication is not just referring to the law of chastity. The fornication is referring to the removing from the covenant with God. Because God in the Old Testament is married to Zion and Jerusalem. And in the New Testament, God is married to the church as her bride. But this lamentation of the burning and the smoke is just horrific. Verse 10 continues on. Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour is thy judgment come. And I think whether or not we live in a city, that will happen on all of our death. Uh, We will um, end our second estate and the Lord will call us to accountability. 
But fortunately, the atonement is still intact on the other side of the veil, and repentance is always possible. Finishing up in chapter 18, we get to verse 20. And all the mourning is finally finished, and the saints are able to say, Rejoice, thou heaven, for God hath avenged you. All the torture and persecution is finally avenged. And the chapter ends with just reviewing the six witnesses of destruction. There is no more Babylon, no more music, no more craftsmen, no more manufacturing, no more light, and no more voices. That's 1821 to 23, beautifully written in a poetic fashion to describe the death of wickedness. And as I mentioned before, God does everything out of love. And removing us from one place to another is not necessarily bad. Um, It's allowing us to continue to learn and grow. I, I still feel like he is a God of mercy. Now, when you combine the writings in the New Testament and the Old Testament and the restored scripture, there's a lot of prophecies on the second coming. And so I've just written a few. You can get a lot more in the Bible dictionary. But the book of Revelation discusses most of these. The first one, though, we get out of Isaiah, Isaiah 29. The Book of Mormon will be brought forth. And then we've got the restoration of Christ's gospel, the restoration of priesthood keys, the gathering of the tribes of Israel, the return of Judah to Jerusalem, the building of temples and the genealogical research. All this is Malachi and section 110 of the Doctrine and Covenants. On my slide and on my handouts, I have all the references for each of these. The plagues of flies and maggots and boils, etc., etc. The desolation by earthquake and fire and floods and sinking cities and famines. The wickedness, wars and rumors of wars, including Armageddon. The appearance of Christ to the church leaders in Missouri. And that is section 116, as well as teachings of the prophet Joseph. Then we have the signs and wonders in heaven. The two prophets will be preaching in Jerusalem. The wicked will be burned and Christ will return in red on the Mount of Olives. These are horrific things that are going to happen, but for the saints, they are times of joy because we know our Savior is coming. Continuing on in chapter 19, we have some more beautiful descriptions of our Savior. In fact, chapter 19 is my favorite chapter in the book of Revelation. There are some wonderful things about this, and I think it's in part because it is right before the Savior's coming. Verse 1 and 2 read in the BLB translation, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! The salvation and glory and power of God for his judgments are true and righteous. You know, when your judgment is filled with mercy as well as justice, it is a marvelous way, especially when you have other plans. Then he goes on and gives four hallelujahs. And if you look for the number four, like we looked for the number seven, you'll find a lot of continuity. We had four living creatures or beasts, four seals, four horses, four horsemen, four statements, four accounts of destruction, as well as now our four hallelujahs. In chapter 19, verse three and four, it reads, a second time they said, hallelujah, and the smoke goes up from her forever and ever. And the 24 elders, remember those are the saints who had been part of John's church, who had been martyred or killed and are now serving in God's throne. 
these elders and the four living creatures that are there at the throne of God bowed down and worshiped. Amen. Hallelujah. You know, think of John receiving this vision and these praises and the music that would have accompanied them. I hope it was as good as the Hallelujah Chorus in Messiah, but it was probably even better and I have a lot more to learn. In chapter 5, we read, A voice came out of the throne, and then skipping down a little bit, Praise our God, all ye servants, both small and great, and servants is crossed out and saints is put in. But as saints, we are still servants of God. Even as heirs, we are still servants of God. We will always serve God. I want to read from the NIV in chapter 19, verses 6 and 7. Hallelujah. For our Lord God Almighty has begun to reign. Let us rejoice. So the end is in sight. And we read in verse 7 that the marriage of the lamb is come and his wife hath made herself ready. This is such a poignant and important verse. The marriage supper can happen when? Well, as soon as the bride's ready. And that is why we were taught over and over again that the church has got to be living the law of consecration. The church has got to be a Zion society. The church has got to get ready for the last days because the Savior cannot come until the bride, the church, has made herself ready. Now, this is very interesting. As we look as the bride of the church, how does the bride make herself ready? How do we adorn ourselves? Are we more worried about our physical attire? Or are we more worried about our service? Are we more worried about coming into Christ or fitting in culturally to our societies? You know, it says that the wife hath made herself ready. I believe that this is talking about our covenants and the way we are living and the way we are gathering Israel. We are following our prophet and our God. The Savior will come as soon as we are ready. That is powerful doctrine. And Joseph even spoke about it at the dedicatory prayer of the Kirtland Temple. I'll read from section 109, verse 59. The gathering of thy people may roll on in great power and majesty, that thy work may be cut short in righteousness. As soon as the bride is ready, we will be able to have the Savior come. It is not a matter of how wicked the world is. We are wicked enough, we've been told in general conferences. The problem is the church is not ready. In section 52, verse 11, the Savior taught Joseph, For thus saith the Lord, I will cut my work short in righteousness, for the days come that I will send forth judgment unto victory. So if the church moves forward at good speed, we can bless the whole earth with less calamities. This is powerful message. And recently, Elder Todd Christofferson has said, what is crucial for the Lord's return is the presence on the earth of a people prepared to receive him at his coming. We cannot be burned. We have to have um, what's sometimes playfully called the fire insurance of our covenants. But we have to have soft meat carts, and we have to become like him. This is powerful. Our own prophet has said, do the spiritual work to find out for yourselves, and please do it now. Time is running out. And so our Savior, as well as John the Beloved and our modern prophets, are asking us to live lives that will be worthy of the Savior's second coming. Continuing on in verse 8, it says to her, the bride, was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, 
Now, linen is a favorite word used by John, both in his gospel, his letters, and here. And it represents um, the beauty of the temple garment that was used in the ancient temples. It's also referring to an initiation, an investiture. The words are interesting when you look them up in the Greek. This is talking about a time when we are going to be clothed and permitted to serve in the house of the Lord in a new way with robes of righteousness. He says actually in verse 8 in the NR translation, the new rendition, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So just a few definitions here. The bride is the church. The white robes are our purity or the saints purity. Those who have repented and repent daily to have the gift of prophecy is having the gift of testimony that Jesus is the savior and redeemer of the world. A servant is a saint and the marriage supper of the lamb is when he will come again. And we have in the New Testament two parables about marriage suppers with the, uh, with the bridegroom coming. And remember, everyone's invited, but not everyone comes. We only have those coming to the lamb who are taken off the street, the poor, the lame, the meek. You know, but everyone is invited. And this marriage supper is going to be a time of covenant. Section 58 of the Doctrine and Covenants describes in verses 6 to 12 that the rich and the learned and the noble will not come in, but the poor and the lame and the blind and the deaf will be coming. And returning back to chapter 19, verse 9 reads in the CSB translation, blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. Now, he doesn't refer to the parable of the ten virgins here, but I just want to pause for a minute and say that parable is talking about this time right now. They're waiting for the bridegroom to come and take the bride, and the church will be ready when the saints have enough oil. We're told in the Doctrine and Covenants that the oil represents the Spirit of God. This is why the prophet said, what would you do with more faith? That we will see the greatest manifestations of the Spirit the world has ever known. We will see the gifts of the Spirit, the gift of faith and healing and revelations and administrations poured out like never before. This is an exciting time to live. I was fascinated to learn that the idea of waiting on the Lord has nothing to do with passiveness. It's actively working. I was also interested when I looked up the parable of the ten virgins in restored scripture that there are at least six references in our Doctrine and Covenants that hint at the parable or that reference the parable of the ten virgins. That does not happen with any other parable. This is a sign for our times. And well over half of the references in, um, of the sections of the Doctrine and Covenants refer to preparing for the Lord's second coming. Either they're talking about Zion or they're talking about our covenants. This is a powerful message for us today. Chapter 19, verse 10 reads, For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, I've tried to reference this many times throughout this year. When we refer to prophecy in the New Testament, here's our definition. This is John's definition. It is the spirit of prophecy. And that phrase, the spirit of prophecy, becomes one that we use in the restoration. It's the only mentioned here once. It's only in the Bible one time. Never in the Old Testament. Only once in the New Testament right here. But that phrase is mentioned 17 times in the Book of Mormon. And if you add to it the spirit of prophecy and revelation, it's mentioned twice, including the title page of the Book of Mormon, which was written by Moroni. The Doctrine and Covenants is only mentioned twice, but in the history of the church, when Joseph's journals are being compiled and some of his sermons are being written, we find it 10 times, and the phrase spirit of prophecy and revelation four more times. 
So this is an important message from the prophet Joseph Smith that this spirit of prophecy and revelation that is going to allow the Savior to come again is part of our assignment to strive for now. We need to prepare for personal revelation. And in fact, Joseph used the same definition from the Revelation 19 when he was in a court of law. It's 1843, January 1st, and he's in Springville, Illinois, in a court of law, and someone asks him, are you a prophet? And he says, if any person should ask if I were a prophet, I should not deny it. For according to John, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. If I be a true teacher and witness, I must possess the spirit of prophecy. And that constitutes a prophet. So I feel like many of you have the gift of prophecy in this definition and the spirit of prophecy. Anyone who falls on their knees and comes before our Lord and seeks forgiveness and honors him and obeys his commandments is a recipient of this, just as described by John the Revelator and our Latter-day Prophets. Now, if you want to learn more about these destruction and the terrible times, there are a lot of resources. I've got a few on my handout. I've got a few here on my slide. But the topical guide has even more. The Doctrine and Covenants has the most, as I said earlier. Those revelations were given to a people who were looking forward to the second coming. Our generation, not so much so, but they were really excited about then. They had a lot of questions and the Lord gave a lot of answers. I think another reason why he gave a lot of information on the second coming is because the purpose of the church was to prepare a people worthy of receiving him at his coming. We have got to be temple worthy. We have got to have um, our, our garments spotless. The linen needs to be white. We need to be re repenting daily and coming before our Lord so that we can be sanctified. It's really a powerful message. Chapter 19, verse 11 continues on. I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. Now, remember, the white horse is the conquering horse. That's the, the Roman Caesar or whoever gets to ride the horse is the conqueror. And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he doth judge and make war. This is now our conquering Messiah. The second coming is here. And the rider on the white horse is no longer on a donkey, the peaceful domestic animal of Jesus of Nazareth who came down into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. We now have the conquering Messiah on a white horse. And in verse 12, we can read, his eyes were like the flames of fire. This is the NLT translation. And his head were many crowns and he wore a robe dipped in blood. And then the Joseph Smith translation adds there, out of his mouth proceedeth the word of God. And his name is called the word of God. Do you make that link between John's um, gospel, chapter one, verse one through four, his little preface there, in the beginning was the word and the word was God. He's, he's making all these beautiful connections between the Savior's first coming and his second coming. Continuing on in verse 14, and the armies which were in the heaven followed him upon white horses. Those are the righteous who have received him and they will be coming back. This is why vicarious work for the dead is so important. We are empowering the armies of heaven. And it says that not only are they on white horses in verse 14, but they will be clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And in verse 15, out of the mouth, this is our savior, the, the redeemer's mouth, goeth a sharp sword and with it, it should smite the nations 
and he should rule them with a rod of iron. Now remember, the word of God is the sword, according to Paul's imagery of the armor of God. This is really significant. We can combat wickedness with the word of God, and his voice will be sharp like a sword. We also have a Joseph Smith translation there that says, he will rule them with the word of his mouth, which is the commandments of God, which we are blessed to have. Also, verse 15 says, he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of the almighty God. Now, the winepress can represent blood. And do you remember in Isaiah when he says that the Savior will come and tread the winepress alone? But instead of the gentle little soft crushing of the grapes to make sweet wine, the Savior says, my cup is bitter. He will have to crush the seeds and his wine will be bitter and the wrath of God is going to flow forth. It's a beautiful imagery. It says in verse 16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And Handel's Messiah has turned these verses into beautiful music to honor and praise our God. Chapter 19 then begins with verse 17, clear to verse 21 on the defeat of the beast. So as the Savior comes in, in all of his glory with the white horses and those coming from heaven also on white horses, the first thing they do is destroy the adversary. The beast, the false prophets are all taken down. I'm fascinated with a a talk that was given by Elder Larry Y. Wilson of the 70 at BYU in December of 2015, and he recalled it, the return of the king. And he does have some images to Tolkien in his talk as well, but he's really talking about preparing for the second coming. It's a fabulous talk, and I'd just like to read a portion of it with you. Each of us faces a choice. We can choose to see ourselves as the Lord's servants and humbly seek to know what he wants us to be doing with our talents and time that he has given us. And as such, we can seek to enlarge his kingdom and prepare it for his return. Or we imagine that the story is all about us. Too many fall into this trap. They forget that they are his servants and begin to imagine that he is theirs. They think erroneously that Christ came to make all their dreams come true. Those that will survive the fires are those who will serve our God. And then John introduces a second feast. We have the marriage supper of the lamb or a feast of the fowls. And chapter 9, verses 18 to 21, describe this awful time when the dead will be eaten by the ravenous birds. And it's also described in Ezekiel and section 29 of the Doctrine and Covenants. And the Lord says that the beast was taken And with him, the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, which deceived them. And they had received the mark of the beast and them who worshiped his image into a lake of fire. Now, they always describe hell that way. But remember, we receive in modern revelation the wonderful message from God. It is not eternal damnation. It is God's. Eternal is another name for God. It is God who will present things. And we know he is a God of love. We know that there are kingdoms of glory for all who come to earth, except those few who are the sons and daughters of perdition. We finally get to the millennial reign. Once Satan is bound, once he is taken down, the millennial reign of our Savior starts. So let's read chapter 20, verse 1. I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. 
Now, we know that Satan can't be chained because he's a spirit. He never got his body. But the image is powerful. And as I mentioned earlier, the key holder is someone who is, is very important. Keys are bulky. They're wood. They're usually worn around someone's neck on a chain or something. Um, and they're hand-carved, just like the locks are hand-carved. And, and the bottomless pit just refers to the place where Satan will be bound. But we are taught in the Restoration that Satan is bound by the righteousness of the saints that it is not a literal binding, it is because he has no power over our hearts or the hearts of those who are left to live at this time. In verse two and three, it continues on, and we were told in verse one, it's the angel, but two and three say, the angel laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up there. Now, this is interesting. They set a seal upon Satan as well. These seals are very interesting, aren't they? But I want you to remember that in the book of Genesis, we don't have any reference to Satan or the devil or temptation. It's here in the book of Revelation that we learn the old serpent was the devil. So Christians have a better understanding of this. And this binding of Satan is also described in the Restoration, section 88 and in 1 Nephi chapter 22. Christ's millennial reign begins in verse 4 of chapter 20. Now, we as Latter-day Saints believe that Christ will come before the millennium. So the rest of the world refers to us as a pre-millennialist. Christ comes before the millennium. And after the horrific tribulations of the last days, Jesus, we believe, will physically return before a literal millennium, which will be his reign in peace of about a thousand years. And the earliest church fathers believe this too. But most Christians are post-millennialists. And they had to deal with the fact that Christ kept saying, he's coming, he's coming, and then he doesn't come. And so the theology behind post-millennialists, which is almost about 80%, if not higher, of the traditions of Christianity, they believe that Jesus established his church and that it will prosper for a golden age, about a thousand years or so, and that Christian ethics will prosper, and that will be called the millennium. And then after the millennium, Christ will come for the judgment. So without the guiding and directing of living prophets, we have very different views of here. But verse 4 also says in the NIV that Christ is given the authority to pass judgment, that he is not only our witness, he can read our hearts, but he will be our judge. We're told that other people are going to be at the judgment bar as well. Do you remember Nephi says he's going to be there? Mormon says he's going to be there. Moroni says he's going to be there. And I am so looking forward to thanking them for their records and to seeing them and to giving them our full gratitude for the sacrifices that they had to make so that we would enjoy the gospel of Jesus Christ on the earth. Chapter 20, verse 4 continues, I saw thrones and they that sat on them, which had not worshipped the beast, Neither had they received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And he goes on and talks about the first resurrection from verses four to six. They came to life and they reigned with Christ a thousand years. So the departed dead who were noble, who have repented, who have received their um, ordinances and their covenants with God, they will come back and live on the earth during this millennial period. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who shall share in the first resurrection. This is a wonderful promise. It doesn't matter when you lived on the earth, before, early, or late, if you have received the Savior, you will be able to come back with him as that great host. And then 
chapter 20 changes in verse 7 to 8 to talk about the final battle after the millennium. That's it. The millennium is those six verses. That's it. That's all we have. And the rest now are this period of time where Satan is loosed. It reads, when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth. Again, it's the NIV translation. And then there's one last final battle that is referred to in the King James as Gog and Magog. And there's a lot of speculating on what those names are and what they mean and where it will happen. In verse 9, it reads, they went up upon the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of saints about, and the beloved city and the fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. At the end of that horrific battle with Gog and Magog, we then have the final judgment. That's chapter 20, verse 11 to 14. Verse 11 in chapter 20 reads, I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it. And then the books are opened and verse 12 reads, Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. So our works are recorded in heaven. Our works are recorded on earth. And out of those books, we will be judged. And the book of life is referenced many times in the restoration. And sometimes Brigham will say things like, if you are living your covenants, your name will be recorded in the book of life. Joseph one time said, if you are donating your pennies, women, to the temple cause, your name will be written in the book of life. You know, when you sacrifice, the Lord is going to acknowledge this. This then, with the judgment day, the righteous will be saved. And it says the wicked will go to a second death. Continuing on in verse 14, whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into a lake of fire. Now, people ask Joseph Smith, who is this talking about? Because remember, much of the Puritan world believed there was a heaven and a hell. You were either saved or you were damned. And it was only a very few, the 144,000 that were saved. And it was not even your choice. It was God's choice. So Joseph wanted to clarify this. A lot of people had questions. What must a man do to commit the unpardonable sin? He must receive the Holy Ghost and have the heavens open unto him and know God and then sin against him. There is no repentance for him. He has got to say that the sun does not shine while he sees it. He has got to deny Jesus Christ when the heavens have been opened unto him and to deny the plan of salvation with his eyes open to the truth of it. From that time, he begins to be an enemy. Chapter 21 now moves forward on the celestialized earth. And these are beautiful chapters. Interestingly, the first five verses of chapter 21 are a perfect little chiasmus. Verse one talks about the new heaven and earth, and verse five talks about God creating everything new. Verse one also talks about the sea passing away, and verse four talks about the first things have passed away. Verse 1 ends by the sea no longer exists. The center point is that the holy city descends from heaven. The most important part of these five verses is verse 3 and 4, that God will dwell with his people. So let's look at those for a minute. Verse 1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And then in verse 2, John says that he saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So this is the second reference. Christ comes the first time before the millennium when the bride, the church, is ready. 
And now, at the end of the destruction, after the final judgment, before the earth becomes the celestial kingdom, those who are there are also like the bride. And this time, the new Jerusalem will come. Verse 3 says that God will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. Again, he repeats, God will wipe away their eyes from their tears, and they will need no more death, neither sorrow nor crying. They shall have any more pain. The former things are passed away. You know, John promised that back in the beginning, before we were even opening up the seventh seal. And now it's happening again. There will be no more death. There will be no more pain. The chiasmus ends. He that sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. This image is exciting. It's clean. It's purified. Interestingly, God gives seven statements. You know, this whole book, the favorite number is seven. And I forgot to mention that when we were talking about all the wickedness of the beast, the beast number is 666. It's not perfect. It's not seven. He's a counterfeit. But here, God once again uses seven statements and John records them and numbers them. Talks about making all things new and that God's words are trustworthy, that they are done. All these are statements from God just combined together. I will give to those who are thirsty freely from the fountain of living water. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the, and he talks about the liars and everybody, and then he talks about the second death. In chapter 21, verse 5 and 6, the Lord comes to talk to John and gives him instructions to write. Write, for these words are true and faithful. For he said unto me, it is done, and I am Alpha and Omega the beginning and the end. So the angel initially told John in the middle of the vision, get out your quill and start recording. And now it's the Savior who comes and says, keep writing. I want people to know about this. In fact, he says, verse six, I will give unto him that is a thirst, the fountain of waters of life freely. Now these waters of life were prophesied by the Savior to the woman of Samaria, living water. If you come to me, I will give you living water. Now that was a long time ago, historically, but it is within the grasp of not just that woman at the well, but all of us who come unto Christ. It reminds me also of Nephi's vision that describes something similar. First Nephi chapter 11, in verse 25, it reads, I beheld that the rod of iron, which was the word of God, which led from the fountain of living waters, or to the tree of life, which waters are a representation of the love of God. So not only is the fruit a representation of the love of God, but these waters, this fountain of living water that, that comes from the tree of life is also a representation of God's love. So when we are thirsty, Spiritually, let us receive his love. And for me, the best way to receive God's love is by repenting. Look in my life, what's wrong? What thoughts, what words, what actions have I done that have offended the Spirit? And once repentance is there, God's love comes in, in abundance. Verse 7 in chapter 21 reads from the NIV, Those who are victorious will inherit all of this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. He's describing now the celestial kingdom. And then in verse 8, he describes another. He says, but the fearful, the unbelieving and abominable, the murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters, all the liars shall have their part in a lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And then in verse 9 in chapter 21, he reads, 
there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and he talked to me, saying, Come hither, and I will show thee the bride, the lamb's wife. Verse 10 now reads, And he showed me that great city, holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. And we get lots of verses trying to describe this amazing city, having the glory of God and her light was like unto stone, most precious, even like jasper stone, clear like crystal. Continuing on to verse 12, it had a wall great and high, it had 12 gates and all the gates had 12 angels and the names were written thereon, which were the names of the tribes of Israel. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations and in them were the names of the 12 apostles. So we have this, this number of God's order, of God's organization, and it's being led from before his birth and then after his reign and throughout the history of the world, we have seen the same teachings of Jesus Christ. It's just beautifully described in the same manner that we see. Do you remember in the Old Testament, Aaron, as the high priest, was given a piece of metal that he wore over his chest called the breastplate that had the 12 stones to represent the tribes of Israel. Many of those stones are used in the same words here to describe the holy city. They're the covenant. And remember, Aaron is representing our Savior. Jesus is the great high priest. Jesus is the one who actually will take our sins upon him. It wasn't Aaron. It wasn't the lamb. It was a representative of our Savior. And so we have a lot of images that are the same between those two. The New Jerusalem is also discussed in the Doctrine and Covenants. So if you're interested in more information, section 42, verse 9, 45, verse 66, section 84, right at the beginning, 2 through 4, section 133, verse 56, we read about it in 3 Nephi. The Lord describes it in chapter 21, verse 24, as well as in the book of Ether, chapter 13, verse 10. But interestingly, one of the angels comes and tells John he wants him to measure the city. Now, in those days, they used to measure with very long reeds, but this reed is gold. That was their measuring rod, and so they do them in different types of lengths. And so your different translations will give you whatever was being used by the translator at that time as a measuring rod. Verse 17 in chapter 21 says, He measured the walls thereof 144 cubits. We are not surprised. I think these numbers are symbolic. If it's 144, it's symbolic. And a cubit was the king's measurement from the elbow to the tips. So it's about a foot and a half or something. But because this number is 12 squared, it represents God's order perfected. Now, if you read in some modern translations, they'll tell you this cube is made up of either 1,500 miles or 2,400 kilometers, but each section is that long. So you have the length and the width and the height. When you do the math, you come up with different numbers because nothing's exact, but it's like half the size of the United States. This city, the new city, is larger than the nation of India. It's absolutely enormous. And if you count up how many flights of stories high it's coming, it's over a million stories high. So I think it's symbolic. I think he's saying there is room for all who are worthy to come in. Um, and it's a perfected place. It says in verse 18, the city was pure gold, like unto clear glass, and the foundations of the walls of the city are garnished with all manner of precious stones. Continuing on in verse 23, the city had no need for the sun neither the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And then skipping down to verse 27, there shall be no wise enter into anything that defileth, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. You know, this is so important. 
to do those things that are required to have our name written in the Lamb's Book of Life or Jesus' um, servants that he will honor. It's hard to imagine not needing the sun. I don't know if this means the earth will be taken and be near Kolob so that we can receive the light from God. I do not know what this means, but it is referenced often in the Doctrine and Covenants as well. We'll finish up now chapter 22, describing the tree of life. The tree of life bears 12 manners of fruits, and they yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of that tree were for the healing of the nations. That's chapter 22, verse 2. One of our good Christian scholars on this is Margaret Barker, and she describes what the early priests used to think about the tree of life and how that ties into the book of Revelation. She says that it's a beautiful connection. She said that the tradition of the ancient priests in the temple thought themselves as angels or messengers from heaven, and the tree of life gave wisdom and eternal life. But the human pair disobeyed, that's Adam and Eve, and they chose knowledge that could be used for good or evil. And only then did they discover that they were barred from the tree of life. Satan's deception in Eden was to imply that both trees, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil, had the same benefit, that both made humans like angels. It was disobedience that was the problem, not the state they aspired to. In the book of Revelation, this is reversed. The faithful Christian is promised access again to the tree of life, and this meant access to the angelic state. So she may not have the whole story, but she's got some great history that was part of the earlier traditions. There's no more curse on the land in verse 3. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. He will always be our God and his name will be on our forehead. Now, do you remember back in chapter 7 of Revelation, the righteous had their foreheads sealed so that they did not have to endure all the calamities. But now those who follow the prophets, those who've come unto Christ, will have Christ's name on their foreheads. Continuing on in chapter 22, I want to read from verse 6. The NIV reads that the Lord sent his angel to show his servant the things that must soon take place. The idea of soon is interesting, and the idea of angel is interesting. An angel is a messenger, and whether they are messengers who are physical or immortal, we can all work to serve God. Verse 7 says, I am coming quickly, and blessed is the one who keeps the word of prophecy of this book. Now, poor John, at this point, he falls down and worships the angel. And the angel says to him, See that thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren the prophets. Verse 10 says that John was told, Seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book. He wants him to write it. He wants it to send it out. He wants it, the churches to know this information. He ends the chapter 22 now with some witnesses and warnings and exhortations. Starting in verse 16, he is this beautiful name for the Savior. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. And then in verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who is thirsty come. But then verse 18 is our tricky one. If any man shall add unto these sayings, God shall add unto them the plagues that are written in this book. Now, people who use this against the need for another book of scripture, like the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants, do not understand how the Bible was put together. You know, John's book is being written at a time before there was a canonized scripture. When he's talking about don't add to this book, he's talking about his scroll. 
and and the order that the scriptures were placed was by length and and things like that. It, it had nothing to do with John being the last one to write. And in fact, we read the same kind of messages in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 12. Thou shalt not add thereunto or diminish from it. Even in Proverbs, add thou not unto this word. The Old Testament wasn't canonized at this time. Not even any of Paul's and John, no one else's writings was canonized or stops. You know, it's a misunderstanding of how the Bible came to be when that is used against us. But of course, Satan is just using it against us. Verse 20 now ends. He who is a witness of these things says, yes, I come soon. Amen. Reminds me of the promises given elsewhere. John ends in verse 21. Grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And as we close this book, I too would like to say that I believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world and that he is coming and that he has invited us to help prepare the way. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.